reading from Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat to every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good, of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living, living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the bird of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Can I invite you to please to stand? Uh, and uh, we're on page nine before we uh, wrestle with uh, God's word and with the uh, readings. Um, we rehearse our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. One of the things about a creed uh, that I found really helpful, particularly in a week like this, where the, um, the news of the world is just, just overwhelming, isn't it? Um, it always is, but sometimes it gets loud. Um, the creeds remind us of our true story, of the bigger story. Uh, and so there's a kind of defiant hope when we say, in the midst of everything, uh, we believe in God the Father who loves us, and God the Son through whom we are redeemed, and God the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us and drawing people all over into the peace that the world cannot give. Almighty Father, as we uh, come now to um, wrestle with this story, um, it's in, for some of us it's going to be a familiar story, for some of us it's going to be a new story, for many of us it's going to be a challenging story, and um, it, it inevitably uh, reaches down and touches uh, very, very deep places in our lives, and each of us is going to experience it in a, in a very unique way. Um, will you meet us there? Thank you that you are kind and subtle, very gentle with our uh, frailties, fears, uh, areas of guilt, shame, hopes, desires, struggles, all those things. You, um, you are remarkably kind. And so I pray that today we would experience your kindness. That you, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance anyway. So thank you for that. Um, and so would, would you do that? We need your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so um, we are continuing our series in uh, Genesis. Uh, this is the second time we've looked at Genesis chapter 2. We're pretty much just going to be looking uh, on page 8 at the latter portion, the, the bit that's about marriage. So we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about relationships. And oh my, um, you, you can't talk about uh, marriage, uh, sexuality, relationships um, without just a thousand questions coming up, right? And a lot of those questions are just explosive. And in fact, just the fact that I mentioned that for some of us, already there'll be a little explosion uh, going on in some of us. And, and there's a variety of reasons why it brings up so many questions and why those questions are so explosive. Uh, part of it is that as a general uh, wider society, we don't have a lot of consensus uh, specifically about marriage, what marriage is, what forms it should take, uh, what it's for, what its meaning is. We just don't have a lot of consensus about that. And a lot of people, you see if you can identify with this, a lot of people would say uh, marriage, sexuality, uh, relationships, romance, whatever you want to call it, is a, many people would say it's a, it's a very private part of your life, and, and because it's a private part of your life, the, the meaning and purposes of marriage, sexuality, things like that, really should be up to the individual, um, the wider community, or it really shouldn't have too much of a say in that. In fact, any standards outside individual expression uh, is, is, um, is a form of, of, well, coercion or oppression and, and things like that. And that line of thinking, um, I mean, I think we can all identify with it, uh, that line of thinking lines up, part of why it's, it's, it's um, uh, quite compelling to a lot of us is that it lines up with our uh, Western values for individualism, uh, and it lines up with our uh, deep suspicion of anything that might restrict individual uh, freedom. And I can well imagine somebody saying, listen, if we are going to talk about marriage and sexuality, those sorts of things. Let me tell you, the last person I want to hear it from is, is the church and a pastor. Uh, and I can hear somebody saying, um, because the church and pastors are notoriously hypocritical about this whole thing and have been for such a long time. So why in the world do I want to um, hear from someone like that? And, and, you know, if that's where you're at, I, I, <laughs> I feel the force of that argument every day. And yet, am I crazy? Um, I want to ask us to, to pay attention and, and to listen to this text um, for a variety of reasons. So um, one reason is that this reading is really kind of unique in the fact, not unique, but it, one of its special gifts is it allows, it allows us to explore the positive vision for marriage and sexuality that the Bible gives. Very often in church, we end up talking merely about prohibitions. The Bible says you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that or whatever the case. Now, those are important, but those prohibitions only ever make sense. Maybe one of the reasons why they haven't made sense to you is because they're too often not framed in the positive vision. So today, we're not really going to talk too much. It's going to be implied, but we're not going to talk too much about the prohibitions. We're going to talk about the positive vision because that's where the passage leads. That's one thing. Here's another reason to listen to this um, passage. This reading has been critiquing hypocrisy within the religious community for like 3,000 years. Um, what do I mean? Well, remember that uh, Genesis, we've been mentioning this uh, frequently, uh, Genesis was written sometime after Israel 
was liberated from enslavement in Egypt. And at that time in the ancient Near East, no culture thought about marriage in the way that this passage will. So it'll be, it was as odd for them as it is for us. It, when I, when, and in their culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, polygamy was just the default, maybe the ideal. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs um, says that um, polygamy fit into the wider cultural assumption that uh, imperialism was a good thing. So this is right about the time where the rise of the first empires happens. And in polygamy, a man could make his family into a little empire. Um, if he could collect a lot of wives, have a lot of kids, uh, it would allow him to kind of have an economic empire. And my guess is that for a lot of us, that is just an appalling idea. But part of the reason it's an appalling idea, and I hope it is appalling, Part of the reason it's an appalling idea is because around 3,000 years ago, this reading broke on the scene and affected a revolution in the history of marriage and family. Because what happens is this reading holds up man and woman as uh, dignified partners together. And this reading uh, boldly promotes uh, monogamy, lifelong monogamy, as the exclusive place for sexual intimacy. Now, I know that right there that we've gotten into controversy, but what I want you to see is that it was controversial when it first came out. And the first group that it critiqued was the religious community, was ancient Israel. Because, um, again, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that after Genesis 2, polygamy's days were numbered. He points out that early in the Bible, uh, the Bible regulates polygamy. From this point onward, the Bible always critiques polygamy. I can make that case at another time if you don't believe me. And eventually, the people of God abolish polygamy entirely, and it's because of this reading. Why is that important for us? It's important because if you're a Christian here, and especially if you're a member of Emmanuel, you need to read this reading ready to discover your own hypocrisy because it's designed to uh, confront the religious community before it confronts anybody else. Uh, and and we're gonna, we just need to be ready to repent, okay? And on the other hand, if you are somebody that's very suspicious of religion, and you may be a Christian and suspicious of religion, or you may not be a Christian, but if you're suspicious of religion, I wonder if you would at least be willing to consider this. This reading has, was just a massive win for equality when it uh, first came out in the ancient world. And for 3,000 years, it's been uh, unveiling the hypocrisy that's within the church. In fact, one of the reasons why we know that the church is often hypocritical is because we don't live up to this vision. Now, if this reading can unveil the hypocrisy today and has been um, just, just uh, um, a radical win for, for equality for 3,000 years, then just consider whether or not it might have wisdom for you too. Is that fair? Okay, well, let's go. Here's what I wanna show you. Everybody buckle up. Um, I wanna show you that Christian marriage has to be about something bigger than marriage. That's where we're gonna focus, but before the end, I also wanna show you that Christian singleness has to be about something bigger than singleness. Let me show you what I mean. Go to the reading, look at verse 18. It says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Okay, stop right there, because um, we've seen, if you remember Genesis chapter one, God makes stuff and then he says it's good, again and again and again. And this is the very first time when God does something and looks at it and says, oh, actually, this is not good. 
It's not good for the man be, to be alone. Now the question is, why? Why isn't it good for the man to be alone? And I can hear somebody saying, well, it's obvious why it's not good for the man to be alone. The poor guy's lonely. Um, he needs a fulfilling relationship. However, I want you to consider that that might, that reaction might tell us more about our culture and our uh, values than it does the text. And here's why. One of our deeply held, rarely articulated uh, cultural beliefs, I think, is this. Uh, we often believe that um, we will never be a fulfilled human being outside the context of a sexual relationship of some type. That, we never say it that way, but you can hear that undercurrent in conservative circles and progressive circles. It, it shows up in different ways, religious circles, irreligious circles. Um, but that, that's one of the values we often hold, but that's not what the text is about. And we know that because the man does not say he's unfulfilled. It's God that looks at the situation and says something's not right. Why does God look at the situation and say something's not right? Well, according to the text, it's this. The man is not sufficient for the mission God's given. What's that mission? Well, think back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember we uh, talked about this a few weeks ago? Uh, it says that God created humanity in his own image. And the fact that humanity is made in his image means that humanity has a mission. What's the mission? Well, the mission we talked about is that we are to know God with a particular uh, privilege, but then we are to represent God or reflect God. It's a little bit like a mirror. A mirror can't produce light, but it's really good at reflecting. And in Genesis, humanity is meant to reflect God, his, his goodness and his grace, his justice, his mercy. We're to reflect God into the world, all over the world, throughout the world, in such a manner that life flourishes. Well, that's God's mission from the very beginning. Um, now, keep that in your mind and bring that to the man, because a single individual is just not going to be able to pull that off. The only way that kind of mission can be fulfilled is if God has a community of humans. And in the Bible, marriage is the cornerstone of building that community. And that's why God says it's not good for the man to be alone. The man needs a very specific kind of ally. Go back to verse 18. It says that God, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the word helper is not very helpful. Um, because in English, the word helper kind of sounds like sidekick, doesn't it? And that's not what this means. So uh, the Hebrew word for helper uh, turns up 19 times in the Old Testament. I read that somewhere. I didn't count. Um, I also read that 16 of those times, um, I shouldn't have admitted that. I sh anyway, um, 16 of those times, uh, it, it refers to the Lord, who's the helper of Israel. Now, the Lord, now, and, and in those contexts, what, it, what it's describing is how the Lord breaks into Israel's life and does for Israel what Israel cannot do for Israel's self. Uh, the Lord's not a sidekick. Uh, neither is the wife. Neither is the woman. Instead of the word helper, um, a Bible teacher called Amy Bird um, uses the word necessary ally, and I think that's really helpful. It captures the idea better. There is a beautiful interdependence, mutuality, between the man and the woman and the husband and the wife. 
The wife is to be a kind of necessary ally to the husband in a way that reflects how the Lord is necessary to Israel. And, and, and so and so the wife is reflecting some of something of who God is. And something also something similar with the man. Because later on in verse 22 the man has to give up his rib for the woman in ways that reflect the way God gives uh, to Israel. Both the man and the woman reflect something particular about God's character. The man and the woman are different from each other. They're not identical, but their differences actually equip them to work as a team in representing God in the world and fulfilling the mission. And, and just pause. Can you see why I say that marriage has to be about something bigger than marriage? It's about a mission. It's about God's mission from the very beginning. Christian, mission, Christian marriage is a team <laughs> pursuing God's mission together. And I wonder if that's what you thought marriage was for. But let's keep going, because if marriage is a mission, is a team that's on mission, then it also needs to be bound together in covenantal love. What? Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that is covenantal language if you're immersed in the Bible. What, you ask, is a covenant? Great question. Uh, a covenant is a committed relationship ratified by God that transforms an identity. It's a little bit like a legal contract, except it's animated not by law merely, but by love and loyalty. And on the other hand, it's animated by love and loyalty, but it's fortified by promises that are ratified by God himself. And therefore, it stands even if emotions fade. And that's what marriage is. The man, and you see verse 24, the man shifts his allegiance from his family of origin to his uh, wife, to his new covenant with his wife. And you see the word holding fast? The man is to hold fast to his wife. That word holding, holding fast is also, when it's used in the rest of the Bible, it very often describes how God's people Israel are supposed to hold fast to God and their covenant with God. Once again, the husband and the wife are to hold fast to each other in a way that's kind of like and makes vivid how God's people are to hold fast to God in his covenant. There's a mirror imaging going on between the relationship between God and his people and the relationship between husband and wife. It's part of the mission. Let me just say it again. The God of the Bible shows who he is through making promises and keeping those promises in a covenant. The God of the Bible shows his love through making a covenant with his people and then keeping that covenant with his people no matter what, all the way through the long story of the Bible. And therefore, if marriage is going to reflect that kind of God, which is its purpose, then it has to illustrate that same covenantal love in its own framework between the husband and the wife. Now, let me ask you a question. It is specifically for married people. To what extent is God's mission central to your marriage? And I want to argue that it really needs to be. Why? Many reasons. Here's three. 
when God's mission is central to your marriage, it'll help you be grateful, it'll help you be resilient, and it'll help you be joyful. It'll help you be grateful because uh, when you uh, look at your spouse, uh, my, my, my wife is not here. She usually sits over there someplace. She's not here today. Uh, my wife is uh, beautiful and smart, um, and there's a thousand reasons to be delighted with my wife, and I am. And all of those things are amplified when I realize that she is a gift of God to me to show me more of who God is and to draw me into a closer fellowship with God. And therefore, when I look at her, I see not only the object of my love, but I see a gift from God who fills me with gratitude. And that's because it's placed in the, in the context of mission. Secondly, um, focus on the mission will make uh, your marriage more resilient because every marriage suffers. But we suffer better when we suffer with purpose. And a marriage with eyes on the mission of God can go through the difficult seasons understanding that, they, that you are part of a larger story and that God's going to gather up what you're going through into his larger story. Makes you resilient. Then thirdly, it makes you joyful uh, because you'll realize that your spouse is not only your lover, uh, but your spouse is a comrade in a great mission and a great adventure. And that fills you with the joy of camaraderie and partnership. All right. So um, marriage needs to be about something bigger than marriage. It needs to be about the mission of God. Uh, within that, the man and the woman, different as they are, are bound together to be a team. That binding together is covenantal. But then thirdly, I also want to show you that uh, even sexual intimacy is for the mission of God. Uh, look back at verse 24. The two become one flesh, and they're naked, and they are not ashamed. Now, sexual intimacy here happens within the covenant. And uh, th this is where things get um, controversial, because the Bible does teach, I don't want to be coy about this, the Bible teaches that sex should happen inside the covenant of marriage and, and not outside it. And many people are going to think that that's hopelessly repressive, restrictive. Uh, maybe exclusive. But I want you to see, even if you think that way, I want you to at least understand the purpose. Sexual intimacy inside this covenantal marriage, it's designed to be an ongoing renewal of the covenant. The husband and the wife are supposed to give themselves to each other in total trust, in total safety, in total vulnerability, naked and unashamed. And in that context, sexual intimacy becomes about giving yourself away unreservedly for the joy of the other so that it's not a transaction. It's not how good you can get it. It's not about getting even primarily for yourself. It's not about evaluating one another or yourself's performance. It's about giving all that you are to the other, seeking the joy of the other, and taking joy in seeking the joy of the other. And all of that can really only truly happen within the security and the safety and the sanctity of the marriage covenant. And inside the covenant, Sexual intimacy ends up fortifying the bond between the man and the woman, between the husband and the wife, 
and allows them to spend 40, 50, 60 years shoulder to shoulder pursuing God's mission, being renewed together in their bond. Uh, it also makes babies. And that's part of the mission too. Okay. But now let me ask a question. And this is a question to married people, it's a question to single people. And this, this, this could get hard, okay? Everybody take a deep breath. Uh, how does this challenge your vision of sexual integrity? Um, we said in the beginning that, that this reading should uncover our hypocrisy, especially within the religious community, especially within the Christian community, especially for members of Emmanuel. Um, what areas of repentance does the, might this call forward for you? Uh, is the Holy Spirit bringing anything up? And I am mindful that for some of us, it, it may be a kind of, it may be still vague, not sure, but I know it brings up a lot of feelings. And maybe it brings up fear. What else might this mean? Maybe it brings up uh, areas of guilt or memories, terrible memories, uh, shame. I, I don't know. Anger. Maybe it brings up anger. I don't know. If it does, some of my very earliest memories of my whole life are bound up in these issues and are just catastrophically filled with difficulty and shame. And I want you to know right now, if that's where you're at, I want you to know, I don't know your story, but Jesus does. And I want you to hear right now, unequivocally, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And Jesus isn't to shame you. He's here to heal you. And this is a moment to trust him. I promise you he's trustworthy. Okay, but I can hear somebody say, uh, okay, hang on. What about single people? This, is, this, is, this leaves single people out to dry. Uh, what about the people who want to be married but never will be married? What about the people for whom, for a variety of reasons, they just, this, they just, uh, they will not find their home within this vision of marriage. You know, for a thousand, and I know that there's a lot of elephants in the room. They don't have time to address them all. It would be great to talk about that over coffee, okay? What about all these things? Well, those are really good questions. And to answer those questions, we need to think about the last Adam. The last Adam? Do you know Jesus is called the last Adam? Why is he called the last Adam? Uh, because he fulfilled the mission that Adam and Eve failed to accomplish, and that we all fail to accomplish. And one of the interesting things that we don't talk about enough is that the last Adam, Jesus, uh, he never married, which was unheard of in his day. Unheard of. Jesus was a complete cultural outsider. They didn't have any room for singles at his time. But Jesus changed that forever. Another revolution in the history of marriage and sexuality. Why didn't Jesus marry? Well, part of the reason is this. Um, Adam married because he needed a necessary ally to fulfill the mission. Jesus not only could accomplish the mission on his own, he had to accomplish the mission on his own. Jesus came to be our helper, oof, necessary ally. He came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
Adam and Eve failed in their mission. All of us fail to represent God well. All of us have falsified God. The married people in the room, we know we've falsified God in the midst of our marriage. Single people, we've falsified God in a variety of different ways. And all of us bear the pain and the guilt and the fear and the shame that goes along with it. We all of us need redemption and healing, forgiveness and restoration. And when you look at the last Adam, when you look at Jesus, you, this is what you find out. Adam, the first one, gave up a rib. The last Adam gave up his whole body. And through giving up his whole body for you, Jesus purchased your redemption, your restoration, your healing, your forgiveness, and your pardon. Jesus is your necessary ally. And he bore all the cost and he gives you all the benefit. And because Jesus gives all that he is for you, it calls us into a covenant of union with him where we can finally be absolutely unashamed, naked and unashamed. What does this mean for us? Slightly different things for single people and married people. Single people. Uh, many of us, I already said this, believe deep down uh, that we'll never be a fulfilled human being outside the context of a sexual relationship. Um, the, the Bible is going to strongly say that's not true. And the reason the Bible is going to strongly say that that's not true is because Jesus is the most fulfilled human being that ever lived, and he was a single celibate man. But what is true is what I'm about ready to say. We will never be fulfilled outside the context of a covenantal union with Jesus. And that's true of single people and married people alike. And when you see the, all that Jesus has given for you, then you'll want to give all that you are for him. And there you will find the intimacy, the true intimacy, deep intimacy that your soul needs, and you'll find power to follow Jesus in holy celibacy. And when you follow Jesus on the path of celibacy, your singleness and your celibacy ends up serving God's mission just like marriage does. Be, remember, marriage is designed to reflect God and especially it reflects the union between uh, God and his people. Well, when you walk forward in uh, singleness and celibacy, you reflect Jesus too, because you reflect the particular path that Jesus took. And not only that, you actually give us a foretaste of our future, because uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, Jesus teaches that Christian marriage is temporary. It's permanent right up until death. But it's temporary beyond death. It doesn't extend beyond death. There will one day be a day when all of us are single. And part of the, po the point of that is that Christian marriage is always to point to a greater union. Now, if you're single, walking in celibacy, then that means right now you are a signpost to the rest of us of, of our future. You're a signpost of the priority of covenantal union with Jesus Christ. And that means this. We honor your holiness among us. We need you. Married people. If we try to live this vision without being animated by Jesus, we are going to crash in a pile of hypocrisy. And there's enough of that. But if we see Jesus as our necessary ally, and if we see that Jesus gave not only his rib, but his whole body, for us, uh, then we will experience new animating power to give away our lives for Christ, to give away our lives for our spouse, to give our lives away for our children, and to give our lives away for the flourishing of the world. 
And that's where Jesus is taking us. And maybe one last word. For those of us who think that all this is just ridiculous, you're kidding me. I'd love to talk to you. And I might ask you just one question. In this reading, God says it's not good for us to be alone. And I wonder, what would it be like if Jesus, if you found Jesus, even if you think all this is crazy, if you found Jesus speaking to you and saying it's not good for you to be alone, and what if you heard Jesus say, and I'm not even talking about finding your perfect partner, what if you found Jesus saying it's not good for you to be alone and I want to be your necessary ally, and I want to bring you into the covenantal relationship for which your soul thirsts but you've never tasted? What would that be like? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.